This podcast is part of the No Phony Podcast Network, the home of independent awesomeness. Did our favorite TV shows and films teach us all we needed to know about Thanksgiving in the 1980s? Pull up a chair and let's dig in. Once again, it's time for the idiots. An objective defense of the 80s. From a couple of idiots. Welcome back to another episode of the Idiots, an objective defense of 1980s pop culture from a couple of turkeys. My name is Will, and joining me, as always, is my friend and my co-host, Ray. Gobble, 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 gobble. <laughs> gobble, gobble. Today on, today on the show, I don't know, what do we usually talk about? Yeah, today on the show, we're going to be talking <laughs> yeah. about some, some, of, some of the iconic uh, 1980s TV shows and films. No. Today, that's a, that's a broad category. I, I think you're struggling with this one here. You just have to say, yeah. on today's show, okay. we're going to be talking about yeah. 1980s Thanksgiving oh. sitcom episodes. That's what I was thinking. And, and a little bit later, we'll be speaking with Lila Robbins, who is in a number of hit TV shows right now, but got her start in the ultimate Thanksgiving movie, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. But before we do any of that, please like, subscribe, rate, review, comment, tell somebody about the show. Don't keep it a secret, folks. It's 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 Thanksgiving. Be grateful. Yeah. I think I'm con- conflating uh, Thanksgiving and Christmas together with giving something. If you're grateful for the show, tell other people about it. Right. And Christmas is coming and you have plenty of time to get them a t-shirt from Tee Public. Oh. <laughs> or a mug or a magnet. Nicely done. Thanksgiving is the perfect time to order that stuff because it'll be here in perfect time. Nicely done. So, you know, we're going to be talking to Lila Robbins today, and I know her her, her mother is a, is a great supporter of hers and may very well be listening to this episode. So I feel like we need to warn her and say, uh, you know, Mrs. Robbins, a couple of middle-aged guys, Ray and myself, who are, you know, somewhat juvenile at times, will be talking about uh, different 1980s pop culture items for the next 40 minutes or so. So skip to minute marker 40 to hear your daughter's interview. You might not want to hear the frivolity, the <laughs> juvenile nonsense that's about to take place. Maybe she enjoys juvenile delinquents talking <laughs> about stupid things. You don't know that. I don't. You're right. But just in case. Yeah. All right. Move on. Let's get caught up on 80s news. Hey, today on 80s news, um, we've have, you know, it's not often that you get to be able to say that justice is served in the world, but uh, we just learned just a few days ago that that he finally a suspect was arrested in the terrible, the tragic attack on one of our favorite 1980s actors, Mr. Rick Moranis. If you remember, he uh, was just uh, in the beginning of October that uh, while he was finishing up a morning walk, he was violently attacked by by someone who, you know, passed him on the street. Uh, at the time, all we knew is this person was wearing a black I Love New York hoodie. The uh, NYPD offered a reward for any information, and finally they've made an arrest. Uh, according to the NYPD, they let us... Stop. It keeps loading ads and then blacking just, out the text. Just, just go for it. You just make things up. You say things like, uh, <laughs> uh, the suspect was not remorseful in any way, shape, or form. And uh, Rick Moranis has vowed to seek revenge on him and punch him in the head once he sees him on the street. Okay. That was fake news with Ray. (laughs) (laughs) uh, According to the NYPD, 
Uh, they tweeted that a suspect had, had been apprehended and charged, attributing the discovery to a, quote, eagle-eyed NYPD transit sergeant. Uh, a 35-year-old gentleman was arrested. I guess he wasn't a gentleman. He's more of an mm-hmm. According to the authorities, he's actually someone who's listed as homeless. But after he attacked Mr. Moranis, he, he fled uh, on foot. Of course, Mr. Moranis did suffer some uh, pain to the head and back. Uh, checked himself in and out of a hospital, you know, later that day. And seems to be fine. According to the representative for him, he told Variety Magazine that he was fine, but grateful for everyone's thoughts and well wishes. So there you go. Finally, some good news. That's right. Justice is finally served in this case. Yeah. Speaking of good news. Oh, no, this isn't good news at all. Uh, and why would you say that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. The, the opposite of good news. So uh, another of our speaking of, I should say, speaking of 1980s icons that we just adore. And this is the opposite of good news. Uh, unfortunately, Michael J. Fox, according to his uh, second book that just came out, No Time Like the Future, Michael says, or Mr. Fox, he, he deserves Mr. Fox. Mr. Fox is, is planning a second retirement and attributes it uh, largely to a health scare that he had. You know, he's been uh, wrestling with Parkinson's disease for 30 years now. Uh, and he said that uh, the time of him spending, you know, long days on sets and memorizing lines is past him. Um, but additionally, he had a health scare not too long ago where he had a tumor on his spine and had to have it removed. And it seems that, uh, you know, that, in addition to the struggles already has with Parkinson's, was enough for him to say that he needs to move on to the next phase of his life. Uh, he told uh, People Magazine, that, quote, my short-term memory is shot. I always had a real proficiency for lines and memorization, and I had some extreme situations where the last couple of jobs I did were actually real word-heavy parts. I struggled during both of them. This is a real bummer, man. Yeah, this one's tough. But, you know, as we all get older, our short-term memory all gets way worse. Yeah. Uh, along with our long-term memory. <laughs> yes, memory just, just Memory general. in general. Yeah, I saw an interview with him on, I think it was The View, I saw a clip, and he was, you know, he was talking about some of these issues that he has, and he was saying that, you know, he wrote this book because he got to a point where he was unable to be upbeat about having Parkinson's, that he had been someone who, you know, his message was always, hey, folks who are struggling with this like me, keep your chin up, it's manageable, you can get through it, and he said he got to this point in his life where, you know, he was falling and slipping and hurting himself because he was losing control of his body that uh, he thought, you know, what am I being so hopeful about? In writing this book, he was hoping to rediscover sort of that optimism, you know. Wow, this is a bummer, man. He's such a, seems like a sweet guy. He looks like he, you know, barely ages. He's still a very, looks like he's young and in shape otherwise, you know. Even though he suffers from the disease, he's still delightful to see every time he's on camera. Yes. Now, maybe as a way of cheering us up, a uh, part of his uh, press tour to promote the book, he did tell a funny story that harkens back to the 1980s and the premiere of Back to the Future. Michael revealed on the uh, Jimmy Fallon show, The Tonight Show, that his world premiere of Back to the Future was turned into a, quote, nightmare, thanks to someone you would never suspect as creating a nightmare for anybody, Princess Diana. And it's not for the reasons you would suspect. From what I recollect, um, he sat down and he realized he had to go to the bathroom. Yep. But he didn't want to get up and walk away because, you know, Princess Diana's sitting next to him and the yep. movie had started. Yep. So he held it for the entire movie. Yeah. <laughs> which absolutely ruined it for him. And I'm sure if he could go back in time, much like I would tell him now, just get up, run to the bathroom and run yeah. back. <laughs> oh. Like there's, there's a part, there are parts in the movie where you're not in it. <laughs> 
<laughs> you think that's what it was? He had a hold on. He wanted to see himself. Well, I know that the, the opening scenes, definitely he had to see. Yeah. Like, you're, you're not walking out on that opening, you know, iconic scene with the amp and everything and all that. But, yeah. you know, at some point you just have to go, you know what? I got to bite the bullet and run to the bathroom. You know, I've been in this situation. It is terrible, right? If you got to hold it in. And oftentimes for me, it would be at a movie. And I, I do not like missing even a moment, like a second of a movie. I will hold it as long as I possibly can. Yeah, I think I would just go to the bathroom, though. I would just... Yeah. Have to come back and see the movie again. No, I can't do it. I've been in that situation without a, a member of the royal family sitting next to yeah, me. Yeah, I've never sat next to somebody as important as Princess Diana at a movie yep. theater before. You're right. We haven't gone together. That's that's true. You know, I, I see this quote where he told the Jimmy that he said, so for the rest of the movie, I'm sitting there like dying. I can't say anything to her and I can't walk away from her because I can't turn my back on her, end quote. Now, I didn't watch the interview, but I'm wondering if that's a, is it because of her, you know, her status? Is it one of those things? You know, there's all these like rules with royal families that uh, a certain etiquette. It, it just maybe you just can't. seems to me he freaked out because he was sitting next to her. Yeah, and because to us he's like a gigantic star. Yeah, she probably thought she probably thought the same thing yeah. though. She probably had to pee too. <laughs> <laughs> I'll go with you, Michael. <laughs> all right, hey, in other '80s news, it's time for another round of. In Philadelphia, it's worth 50 bucks. <laughs> this is that crazy game show that all the kids love it, where I give you an item of pop culture from the 1980s that recently sold on auction, and you guess the price. All right, let's this do time it. This time, I'm going to do it. We'll do it a little differently, too. I'm going to give you two items, and you just tell me which one you think sold for more. All right. And this comes from a company called Profiles in History. They recently had auctions that included, uh, two separate auctions that included two different uh, items from uh, 1980s films that we love. The first one on the auction block is, is an ensemble from Robocop from 1987, including the armor, the helmet, part of the armor, and a hyper-realistic uh, face of Alex Murphy is on the torso that, that they sold, okay. and as well as a glove from Robocop 2. So it's kind of a mix of Robocop memorabilia. That's one item they had for auction. Okay. And then the other item they had for auction, and again, this is Profiles and History is the company, is a uh, kryptonite crystal prop from Superman 3. Mm. What do you think sold for more money? Robocop Ensemble or All right. kryptonite from Superman <sighs> I've 3. written down two numbers here. I have the okay. Robocop gear, I'm guessing 50,000. Yep. And oh. I'm going to guess the crystal, just because it's Superman, I think yep. the, the value is hurt from being in three, mm. but I still put it at 75000 Wow. Oh, a couple things. One, I agree with you, because Superman 3 is the worst of the Superman movie movies. Well, now Superman 4 is worse than Superman 3, but it's bad. Um, you're right that the kryptonite sold for more. Hmm. I'm grateful that you didn't bid for this, because they would have seen you coming. <laughs> The RoboCop Ensemble sold for $8,900. Wow. It's a steal. It's a steal in your world. That's a steal. In my opinion, that's a steal. And the Kryptonite did sell for more for $15,000. Who's running these auctions? I don't know. Well, <laughs> they should have driven up the price, right? For you know what you said. Yeah. How do you not? You got to drive these hmm. prices up. Yeah. This stuff should be priceless. This is a one of a kind. And now I realize the name of our game shouldn't be. In Philadelphia, it's worth 50 bucks. It should have been, I'd buy that for a dollar. <laughs> Dang it. All right. Well, whatever. Regardless, that was 80s news. Dun, 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 dun. 
All right, look, we're not here to talk about that. No, we are. No. Actually, we are. That's part of the show. Well, we talk about all kinds of things, yeah. All right, so in a little bit, we're going to be joined by our guest, star of the most iconic, the best uh, Thanksgiving film of all time, any decade, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, Ms. Lila Robbins, who got her start in that film. Now, you know, we'll talk to her about everything she's done since, because in the last 10 years, she's been on, look, this isn't really, I'm not exaggerating. This is not hyperbole. She's been on every hit dramatic show of the last, you know, again, 10 years or so. Uh, the Blacklist, um, The Boys, which, you know, I love The Boys. Oh, yeah. Um, Homeland. You name it. She was prop murder in the first. She was on these shows. Or she is on these shows even still. Anyway, she'll be joining us in a little bit. But before that, we're going to be talking about uh, iconic Thanksgiving TV episodes from the 1980s. Uh, and most of them are sitcoms. There's one exception to the sitcom rule, but... Um, in watching all these to prepare for the show, I was really struck or reminded by, because I don't watch a whole lot of TV like this, sitcoms. Sitcoms aren't really made like this anymore so much. None of them I watch where you've got a live studio audience or they, you know, add a laugh track in. Mm -hmm. But um, I really like that a lot. So I thought, you know, for at least some part of this segment, I, I want to see what that's like for us to have a live studio audience. Okay. So we'll just see how things go. And if the audience likes the things we do, we'll hear from the audience. Oh, that's awesome. All right, so hey, which episode should we talk about first here? Let, let's yeah, let's do who's the boss first. So who's the boss in season two, episode nine, Thanksgiving at Mrs. Rossini's? It aired uh, November twenty sixth, nineteen eighty five. Here's a summary, and this is not going to be a summary that takes as long as the episode, like my misfit summaries. <laughs> After a messy attempt to help Tony Cook, Angela and the rest of the family accept an invitation to join Mrs. Rossini uh, at her home for Thanksgiving. Uh, once there, uh, Mrs. Rossini puts the women to work uh, while the men get to just hang about and do nothing. Meanwhile, the uh, very attractive Gina, who was uh, Tony knew when they were younger, uh, doting, doting all over Tony, taking care of him, at some point feeding food into his mouth. Uh, and ultimately, yeah, Angela gets jealous of this. As, as she should be, because right. this was a good episode for Tony. Yeah. <laughs> Why, because of Gina? Yeah. Yeah. And I think he made the wrong decision at the end of this episode, but <laughs> yeah, Gina is a very attractive woman. I noted that they said uh, she's from Jersey city. I thought, yeah, yeah. shout out to my hometown. Yeah. And she uh, looks the part. <laughs> yeah. Looks oh like she, she looked right out of a Bon Jovi video. This, this whole scene, I've got to say, you know, because I'm a part Italian part of my family's Italian. So many, so much of this was like, yes, this is how Thanksgiving is. It's like so many holidays. Mm -hmm. The joke about he comes in and he says to her, uh, hey, Mrs. Rossini, you got new furniture? And she says, no, I just took the plastic off of it. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I don't know if anywhere else in the world, I don't know if where your family's from in Ohio or, you know, originally from in the South, you had plastic on everything unless people came over. That's definitely how it was, the family's uh, members I had. And the plastic never came off, though. <laughs> wow. As you know, I love Ohio. And you know who's in this episode who's from Ohio? Oh, let me think now. Let's see. It's not Ray Boom Boom Mancini. It is. He's, he's from, from Youngstown. He's from Youngstown, Ohio. Are you kidding me? I am not kidding. Oh, my goodness. Your, your theory about this, it just proves true. I'm, I'm on so, top of these things. Yeah. But do, do you know who else is in this episode that's going to blow your mind? Mm, let me think. I'm trying to think who's in it. He plays Santa. Wait, there's a Santa in this? At the end of this episode. Oh, okay. I do remember Santa coming in. I don't remember, mm -hmm. I recognized his face, but I didn't think anything significant. He is a man named Bill Irwin, and he is in the movie. Yeah. 
planes, trains, and automobiles. No, 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 no. Is he really? He sits. He's sitting next to them on the plane, and the only surviving deleted scenes from that yeah. movie. That is the only scene. There's an extended part to that. He's sitting next to them on the plane. I don't remember that. Did you did you know Planes, Trains, and Automobiles? The original cut was three hours and thirty minutes long. <laughs> I didn't know that either. No. Yeah, and they cut it. They cut it to two, yeah. and then the studio cut it down to a, an hour thirty. Right. So the original cut, what they cut out of it, yeah. was actually longer than the actual movie. <laughs> now. So Bill Irwin is in the movie. He is sitting next to them. Now, I do yeah, remember he, that now. Yeah, he's in He's in the movie. So you're saying there's even longer scenes with him in it, more stuff with him in it. Well, he really doesn't do anything in the movie. He's yeah. just sitting there as a passenger. Yeah. That's right. Okay, that's why he I He actually, um, I think there's a, a one point in the deleted scene where he asked if, uh, John Candy asked if he can have the brownie. Mm. And then Bill asked, can I have the other half? And John Candy's like, yeah, you can have the other half. Right. But that right. all got cut out. Oh my goodness. Now I want to see the extended cut. You know, now we live in a world where we could have that too. Does that mean yeah. Lila Robbins is a ton of Lila Robbins footage? Maybe there's well, scenes of her uh, on there, there. Well, yeah, I'm sure we can find that out maybe. But. Yeah, I'll have to ask her about that. Um, I thought um, some interesting things that were very 80s-ish to me. R- Mona at some point's watching a, you know, a video of her on TV. She's rewinding it and her remote control is connected to the VCR. Uh, cable. Oh yeah. Yeah, isn't that great? <laughs> I mean, we had remotes that were wireless. I don't know what that was about. It also strikes me as funny. I think she says she's going to go and watch it at her place. Yeah. And she pulls the tape out. Yes. Uh, Yes. VCR. Yeah. And she said, I'm going to go watch it on my big screen. And I thought, please say the size of the screen. Please say the size. Because you know, it's going to be like 27 inches. Yeah. If that. (laughs) Giant screen. In color. I thought, uh, you know, this is one of those only in the 80s kind of things is when... uh, you know, so you're right. So uh, Tony, uh, so Gina makes advances to Tony. She's very interested in him. He realizes in the episode he doesn't like her as much as he thought he did because she's not Angela. So it's one of these moments where they're they're flirting throughout the whole show and they have these sort of yeah. ships passing in the night moments. And um, ultimately they consummate their relationship and, you know, admit their feelings for each other. But at the end, when he says to Angela, I just couldn't go through with it with Gina I'm cha- she says, you're changing. And he says, hey, I still like girls. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, only in, on an 80s sitcom are you going to- She also says that a lot of guys have that problem. Oh, yeah, yes. It does become a little like five-minute <laughs> ad for erectile dysfunction. It, it does. All right, anything else about that one? No, I think on the list, that's one of the weaker ones, though. Yeah. I, uh, you know, and a lot of people have this in the top uh, Thanksgiving episodes. I don't think it belongs there. Yeah, it was fine. All right, so Alf- Alf, season three. This was a two-parter. You know, it's yeah. It's kind of funny. A show as silly as Alf to have a two-parter. Uh, this was season three, episode seven and eight, called Turkey in the Straw. There is a word that there's a home. They alternate between calling him a homeless person, which is in the show. And a bum. <laughs> in the show, a homeless person is more respectful and bum, you know, in the show is, you know, it's more derogatory. But there's, there's word that there's one around in the neighborhood and their next door neighbor doesn't want anybody taking care of him. Um, Meanwhile, Alf has eaten the family's Thanksgiving turkey and half of the, what is it, rhubarb pie or something like that? <laughs> Whatever the pie was, he's already eaten that too. And so now they're forced to go, the family's forced to go next door to the neighbor's house for Thanksgiving, and they hate those neighbors. Uh, meanwhile, Alf 
uh, who's been taking care of the homeless guy by putting stuff, including Willie's clothes out in the garbage and food out for him, uh, winds up making friends, it seems, with this homeless guy because the homeless guy spots an alien <laughs> in this house. But he drops a dime uh, to the government about the alien because he, he, there's a reward connection with it. This one was tough for me. I wanted to like this one. Right. But this one got a little heavy for me because, you know, I don't like the socio-political, let's be better to each other episodes of any show. And this one got- <laughs> He's this, against anything where people want to be nice to each other? What was that? I, I, yeah, this one had the homeless aspect and I, I just didn't care for it. <laughs> um, well, the audience is basically- um, well, yeah, in a number of these episodes, like I'm thinking of that, we think about uh, family ties, at least those two. This one, you you have the homeless guy who's digging the crap out of the trash at their house. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's Alf who's giving him the stuff. <laughs> well, if you were going to put the laugh track in any place, it yep. should they should have put it when he's in the garage and he mm-hmm. walks in with the crowbar. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there should have been a laugh track right there, like. That was That's what good. Any normal person would do. Like, mm-hmm. I'm gonna like you're in my garage. Like, who yeah. the hell are you? And then he's like, uh, "Are you gonna hit me with it?" And he's like, "No." Yeah. And I'm like, "Yeah, hit him with it. <laughs> hit this <laughs> with the crowbar." <laughs> I, I, one of the things that, this, that bummed me out was Alf. Certainly, the first half of it, at least, was like, I was like, "This show sucks. It's not very good." And Alf, it's one of those things. Maybe it's just age. Alf is an asshole. I mean, he ate their turkey. He ate their pie. I'm like, I'm, I'm siding with Willie. When I was a kid, I loved Alf. Now I'm feeling more like Willie. Yeah, I thought Willie was in the right here. And I think he should have took that crowbar to Alf. Yeah, well, it's what it is, man. They can, the, the audience can disagree with me, but mm-hmm. I would have been like, if this was my show, mm-hmm. I'd be like, all right, I want Willie. Mm-hmm. I need you to beat the crap out of Alf with that crowbar. <laughs> And when the homeless yeah. guy walks in, hit him too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Um, you know, not only did they talk about homelessness, which they were raising, and I'm not, I, I disagree with you. I don't mind that they talk about, you know, social issues or political issues. Uh, you know, it, it's, it gets a little uh, distracting, I guess, if it's too overt, but this one was kind of, you know, it was integrated in the story enough but the other thing they do mention, which is, I only bring this up because it becomes a big part of the Family Ties episode, is an aspect of this they do mention about, uh, at least in passing, about the nuclear threat. Like, you know, why do we need enough arms on this planet to blow up a planet, you know? Um, and it just reminded me, between this and the No Nukes episode of the Family Ties, about, again, how scared we were in the 80s yeah. of getting blown up in a nuclear holocaust. Well, what's actually important about this episode is is that this is when they get their microwave. <laughs> And they're trying to program it and Al's reading the instructions to them. And he's actually reading the, the, the VCR instructions to them. And he's like, okay, so it'll be done in like three days or whatever he says. I don't remember that part. I remember them cooking the hot dogs. It's at the very beginning. Oh, okay. And then, uh, but the other thing that's important is, is that uh, David Ogden Steers is in this. Yes. Who's major Charles Winchester on MASH. Yes. He plays the bum. Yes. Does, like you yeah. would have thought this would have been beneath him. Yeah. You know, I didn't look into it, but I, when I saw him, I thought he probably wasn't doing much up until, you know, I'm like, give me a real bum. You know, I, <laughs> I want a bum. Who's like, Willie's not going to invite him in for dinner. Yes, yes. That's the bum I want on this show. 
Yes, we feel da- he's dangerous. Right. I want the bum where they kick him out, not the one they're like, hey, stay in touch at the end of the episode. <laughs> yeah. I hope he keeps in touch. Uh, you know, consistent with, again, the Thanksgiving themes of family and hospitality. And you, you might not like this kind of thing, but I thought this was a good line. And, it, you know, a message to us and maybe one that we need to hear today, Raymond. <laughs> We're all, and this is the quote, We're all pretty much the same. A little needy, a little insecure, but decent and good. Alf says that. Yeah, in the end, this is this is just the story of we're all the same, so yep. be nice to people, yep. which I'm fine with because, once again, I think you should be nice to people until they're dicks. <laughs> okay. I'm digging the new laugh track. and I think we should actually add that to the show all the time. I really wish we could have, at the beginning of our show, you know, The Idiots was filmed in front of a live studio audience. I think we should, re- dude, we should redo the intro to do that. Yeah. And then just use the laugh track because that's all they ever did. All right, folks, you heard it. That's what we're going to start doing. All right. Oh, okay. (laughs) See, I'm already enjoying it. All right. So, yeah. So speaking of uh, maybe episodes that are political, Family Ties, season one, episode eight called No Nukes is Good Nukes. It aired November 24th, 1982. It's Thanksgiving at the Keaton residence, but the turkey dinner might have to wait because Stephen and Elise have decided instead of uh, staying for Thanksgiving dinner, they're going to a uh, protest or a rally. That's a no-nukes uh, a rally. Remember, folks, this is the 1980s. And, of course, this makes their, drives their kids crazy and Elise's parents crazy. And ultimately, they get arrested at this uh, protest, are thrown in jail, and there's in a reversal of roles. It's the kids, ultimately, that have to come, you know, bail them out. I, I thought that, um, you know, I was reminded of, like we talked about this, you know, many, many months ago about how, the story, many of the, the the conflict in the story is the fact that Alex is a yuppie. You know, he's very uh, pro Reagan uh, Republican, and his parents are you know hippies. You know, from the sixties, seventies, um, and so, this was a, the epitome of that idea. There's so many great lines that Alex has. You know, sort of you know just cutting down his parents. You know, uh, yeah. activism. Yeah, actually, this one. You know, I don't like politics in general, but yeah, family ties. I love. This one's super well done because in the 80s, you know, nuclear war was a big deal. Yeah. And I like the fact that they do the back and forth between the left and right on this Mm. show. Mm -hmm. But I also loved that they had uh, Larry Hankin as the pickpocket Mm. in jail. Yes. (laughs) And you know what movie he's from? So many. I don't know. Um, What are you thinking of? Um, uh, He played... uh, Doobie in Plane, Trains, and Automobiles. Come on! He did. That's right. But I love his delivery. And I think for me, because this is early on in um, Family Ties, um, a lot of the actors on this show hadn't hit their stride yet. So it's very awkward in certain scenes. But when you get to the jail scene, Larry's sitting there throwing these one-liners out. (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, I think he steals the jail scene. Yeah. Hands down. Yeah, he's great. But, I mean, for this show, I don't mind the political part of it because going into Mm. it, I already know that's what it's going to be. And the the characters are so well done that it doesn't bother me one bit that they lean. And they don't lean either way. I like that fact. Well, yeah. Uh, yes. And it's, you know, look, it's a hearkening back to a more sensible time, it seems like, when you could be, you know, elbow to elbow with your family and friends at a different political uh, sides and, and break bread and hang out and get along and not uh, demonize one another. And in fact, you know, consistent with that and consistent with Thanksgiving, I thought it was cool that at the end, you know, Alex is funny. He's a, he's a holdout. Yeah. At least his mom and Jennifer go to the jail and the other kids and the dad are like, no, screw that. We're not doing <laughs> yeah. that. 
because they want to ruin Thanksgiving. That's fine. But in the end, of course, they all show up. And Alex, you know, makes a comment that, um, look, we, I might not agree with what you stood for today, but I'm proud that you stand up for what you believe in. And their, or at least his very Republican dad says, you know, what, it wouldn't be American of me to, uh, if I didn't stand up for your First Amendment rights to protest. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's what I like most about this show is is that they're just not pushing an agenda. They're yeah. they're in the middle. They're giving you both options. And I think that's part of why this show, especially this episode for Thanksgiving, is ranked so highly among yeah. Thanksgiving episodes. Because it's yeah. in the, if you look at lists, this thing's in the top five yeah. on almost every yeah. list. Again, you know, in reason, the last recent years in our country, because of how separated we are, it's a great throwback to how we can get along and still disagree. Warms my heart. I, I have to agree. <laughs> so, all right. So here, and this one's number one on some lists, and I could see why. <laughs> yeah. This one's number one on a lot of lists. This is Cheers Season 5, Episode 9, Thanksgiving Orphans, November 27th, 1986. Of course, it opens in the bar, and folks are talking about their Thanksgiving plans. It turns out some folks have plans, some don't. Diane's doing something. Sam's got a date. Norm's got plans to go to his in-laws that he hates. There's a few stragglers. I've got nothing to do. Yeah, Woody says this is, you know, this is the first time he's going to be alone for Thanksgiving since last year. Um so Carla decides to have Thanksgiving at her house and invite these folks that have nothing to do. Of course, by the end of the episode, the entire Cheers gang is at, at Carla's house for Thanksgiving. Yeah, this one has what I love are the one-liners. Yeah. And, and the sight jokes where Norm walks in and pulls the TV yes. where he's sitting. And then uh, Frazier pulls it back and then Sam walks in and pulls it right back the other yeah. direction. <laughs> so there's a lot of little subtle jokes in this one that are really fantastic. Yeah. And um, uh, once again, um, Norm shows up with a gigantic turkey that's not cooked. Yes. But uh, they do a great job on this one of the one-liners, and they keep politics. They keep the feel-good shit out of this one. They just do a great job of sticking to making a Thanksgiving show that's a comedy without a lot of baggage. Yeah, and this one... Just like the others, you know, it's consistent. Again, this idea of family, of people coming together. And your family is, you know, what you make of it. Certainly when you get older. When you're a kid, you're kind of stuck with what you got. But when you get older, you decide who your family is. And oftentimes that's the friends that you have. Uh, you know, you point out the, um, the, 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 the gag with the TV. And of course, this one culminates with the greatest food fight in TV history, where because the turkey never gets done, right? I mean, maybe it gets done by the very end, I think. It it gets done at the end, but at the time the food fight breaks out, they're still starving. Right. Tensions are high. Yeah. And sugar levels are low. And so a food fight is inevitable. I was wondering, and I don't know, but I wonder how many takes that took. Do you think they just got it done in the first take? Well, because that was that made a mess. That would be a hard time to reset that scene and shoot it again. I would imagine since it was made in the eighties, this was one take. Yeah, because once the cranberry hits Diane, yes, there's no way you could start over. Well, unless she had another costume, yeah, right, or even just hitting Sam in the suit he's wearing. I mean, how do you start that scene over? Yeah, you'd have to be changing everybody and cleaning up the set. You would literally have to clean everything up, put yep. all the food back on the table, try getting the exact same spot. Yep. So I think that, would, and that's one of the beauties of this one is, is I think this was a one take. Yep. And the other beautiful part about this is this is the first time you're going to see Norm's wife. Yes, right. Very good. Well, sort of. Yeah. Well, we didn't get to see her 
Yes. But Vera is there. Yeah, we had, I guess, and, and fans of the show might not remember, or maybe fans will remember that you hear Norm talk about Vera so much and you never see her that even the, that as a, as audience members and the characters in the bar suspect Vera may not actually exist. I think there's even a line in this show about, will we ever get to meet her or is there really a Vera? Mm-hmm. And we do get to see her, albeit uh, covered in uh, pie. My, my favorite part about that is, is that Vera is played by his real life wife. Oh, was that in this episode? Yes. All oh, the okay. episodes. Her oh, voice. Yeah. Her voice and that appearance is actually his real life wife. Because I know we do we do see Vera in one episode, maybe in the last season. Is that also yeah. his wife too? Yes. I think that was yes. his wife. Yeah. His wife plays her in all the episodes of Cheers that she appears in. Right. So George Wendt's wife plays Vera. Yeah, that yeah, I thought that was cool too. I think this one this one ranks really high. It's a really great episode. It's just well written. And yeah. Smart. But my friend, yep. that brings me to two that get left out a lot. Okay. That I think we should talk about. All right. And I'm going to start with the Roseanne one. It's called We Gather Together. It was 1989. Mm. And I, I think this one seems more like realistic than the other yeah. ones. I know Roseanne's a comedy. It just had that family vibe to it. Right. I liked it because Dan goes out to play football with his friends in the morning. Mm. which my friends still do to this day on Thanksgiving. They still play football. But uh, this one has, this one has a lot of good shit in it that I just think people ignore. So I think this one should be in the top 10, but it rarely gets there. The success of Roseanne certainly initially was the fact that it was most like folks that you knew, if not your own family, they were down to earth, regular, you know, blue collar people. Yeah. I, I think this one was really good. But there is one I like better. Okay. And I think this, in my opinion, should be the number one Thanksgiving episode of all shows. And it gets left off the list time and time again. Okay. And that is Newhart. Yes. <laughs> Newhart, Thanksgiving for the Memories was amazing. Yes. The, the one-liners on this one are <laughs> absolutely through, through the roof. I don't know yeah. how this one gets left, left off the list over and over again. Yeah. Boggles my mind. Yeah, that, so Thanksgiving for the Memories aired November 24th, 1986. Yeah, such a well-written show. Maybe the most well-written episode of all the episodes that we talked about today. I was reminded uh, of so many things I loved about this show. Of course, Larry, Daryl, and Daryl get applause <laughs> yeah. every single time they come on <laughs> yeah. set. Right? For folks who had like the least amount of lines, they were just stealing every scene they're in. Uh, yeah, when he shows them the knives and he's like, do you want to see Daryl juggle those? Yeah. <laughs> and he just like, Moves him away. He's like, oh. no, which sets up a great yes. joke later on in the show. Yeah, of course. I guess the summary of this show is Bob is preparing to have Thanksgiving at the hotel, but um, why can't they? Uh, well, George tells him they have to have electrical work done. Yeah. So Bob says, uh, well, why can't you just do it? And George says, well, it would take about a year, but the place would probably burn down before I get to it. <laughs> yes. And he says the so, fire would probably slow me down. Yeah, the fire would slow me down. <laughs> So he's like, all right, find me an electrician. So the electrician shows up and Bob's like, all right, we're going to hardball this guy. Yes. George is like, yeah, we'll talk him down. They always give you a big price. So the electrician hands him the price and George is like, wow, you should hire this guy right now. (laughs) It's so bargain. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Bob says, I don't think this is your best price. I think you could go lower. (laughs) George is like, I can't see how he could possibly go lower. And it's... So Stephanie comes back, um, Peter Scolari's uh, girlfriend. Julia Duffy, right? Yeah, Julia Duffy. 
And um, she's like, my dad, who's extremely rich, invites them all and they convince Bob to go. Right. Now, Bob, at the beginning of the episode, also received a set of knives and he's dying. Apparently, Thanksgiving's his favorite holiday. Yes. And part of it is football and getting to carve the turkey. And he's got new knives now. So he's really <laughs> anxious to carve the turkey. So, yeah. So they get to the rich guy's house. And this is one of my favorite parts of this show, too. Bob's sitting on the couch reading a book and everybody keeps going, oh, is he still pouting? Yeah. <laughs> so- her father's going through all the, the things with Bob. You know, what do you want to do? You know, I got all this, I got that. And he goes, you want to go golfing? And Bob's like, ah, the weather's really bad. He goes, who said anything about going outside? <laughs> yes. So after he goes golfing, now he's all into it. Yep. Because he's gone indoor golfing with him. So, and he's like, they're going to let me carve the turkey. You know, everything's cool. And then the stuffed animal. So Stephanie's stuffed animal from childhood. Yeah. yeah Stephanie's stuffed animal is gone. They gave it away to charity and she's all pissed off. So she's like, we're leaving. And so they get back. There's no lights because the electricians have gone home for the day. Right. And uh, Larry, Daryl, and Daryl show up. So eventually they all end up at... Um, Minuteman Cafe. Yeah, the Minuteman Cafe. And they're having Thanksgiving. And um, so they, they go to eat. And and uh, Bob pulls out the, the knives he's got. He's getting ready to carve the turkey. And Larry goes, this is no time to juggle, Bob. <laughs> yes. And, Daryl and Daryl rip the turkey apart with their bare hands <laughs> and pass the turkey out oh. to everyone at the table. <laughs> yes. They had managed not to be weird the whole episode and yeah. until the very end there. Yeah. Yeah. So I think this one should be the, the best of all time. I yeah. mean, like this one is so good. Yeah. And again, you know, this themes of family. You know, even the fact that, you know, you reminded throughout the episode that Bob does not like Larry, Daryl, and Daryl. They're odd. They may be dangerous, but they wind up all breaking bread together by the end of the episode. So which one do you think, and you, I mean, obviously mm -hmm. I picked Newhart as my favorite. Which one do you pick? I agree. In fact, I wrote that down as my number one. And I wrote that, like I said, this is the most well-written of all these episodes. And also again, it embodies that, the ideas, you know, that we associate with Thanksgiving. Gratitude and family and hospitality. I, I don't think we can talk about a Thanksgiving show without yeah. mentioning WKRP and yes. the turkey episode. Right. Um, I think that would be remiss of us. Uh, that is iconic. And that show did go in the 80s, so I think it's okay. The show lasted until the 80s. The particular episode was in 1978, but yes. Yeah. So we're trying to be technical with our list right. here, but... But I... I Definitely think if there was one that could give Newhart a run for his money, it would yep. be the turkey episode from yes. that one. The owner of the station has planned something big. It's going to be a turkey drop. So Les is down at the local, uh, at a store, a parking lot of a store covering it. He's, his descriptions of what's happening, you know, start paralleling those that we're familiar with from uh, the Hindenburg disaster. You hear him describing that suddenly he's seeing a helicopter in the sky and he's not really sure, why do we have a helicopter? Wait, the door is opening. Something is now falling from the helicopter. It's kind of dark. He's like, <laughs> yeah. we should see a parachute opening at any moment. There's no parachute. And then people start fleeing uh, because, in fact, what are being dropped from the helicopter are turkeys. One of my favorite lines is he describes the, the turkey as hitting the ground like a bag of wet cement. <laughs> yeah. He might even yell, oh, oh the humanity at yes, one point. he does. He does. Yeah, and it's not till back at the station that they learn that... Um, in fact, live turkeys were being dropped. <laughs> and what is the line that the the owner of the, what's his name? I can't remember, Mr. Um, Mr. Carlson? Mr. Carlson. Yeah, as God is my witness, I thought turkeys could fly. Yeah. 
so yeah, they were dropping live turkeys out of a helicopter. Hmm. But but now that I think about it, I think um, the woman who played his played Mama on that show, I think she was in Planes, Trains, Automobiles too. Oh 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 oh, Mr. Carlson's mother. Yeah, I think she was on uh, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles too. So I think we got the tie-in on that one too. Are you kidding? Now I gotta look this up. See, you can look it up. I'm pretty sure. Carol Bruce. You're kidding. You're right. Are you <laughs> I knew kidding it. me? Nice. That's amazing. She played Joy. Who was Joy? I don't remember that. Hell if I can remember. I, I'm so shocked that I just <laughs> brought that out of my ass to that's, remember that. That's a great transition because we're going to be speaking with someone whose feature film debut was in Planes, Trains, Automobile, along those other folks that you pointed out from these 1980 sitcoms. When we return with our guest, Ms. Lila Robbins. Odds are, if you watched television at all in the last decade, you've seen our guest because she's appeared on many of the most popular series of the last several years, including Homeland, The Blacklist, Murder in the First, Deception, The Handmaid's Tale, and one of our personal favorites, The Boys. And years before her dozens of TV and movie roles, she made her feature film debut as the object of Steve Martin's affection, the reason for his harrowing holiday journey in the greatest Thanksgiving movie of all time, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Please welcome to the show, Lila Robbins. Hey, Lila. <laughs> Hi, Will. It's, and Ray, how are you? <laughs> oh, we're fantastic. Hey, Ray said something. Great. I did. He's in the show. Uh, Lila, thank you so much for talking to us today. We greatly appreciate it. In the annals of 1980s holiday films, ranking up there, certainly at the very top, is Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, something that's close to our heart. And so in the very least, we're grateful to talk to you about that during this holiday season. Uh, and we can get to that in a little bit. But of course, you know, folks know you well uh, from doing a number of different things on TV and film uh, well since then. But what folks may not realize is that you actually got your start in, in theater and still continue to do theater today. Yes, I do. I'm curious, however, though, you know, being from uh, St. Paul, Minnesota, as you are, and I will spare your mom you telling any stories about broccoli. Okay. <laughs> okay. She'll uh, be relieved. <laughs> but <laughs> in short, uh, you know, uh, your parents come from humble beginnings, but uh, ultimately your dad was a, a chemist who made incredible contributions to... Uh, 3M and technology used to this day. In fact, Ray, in your uh, your other your part time job, uh, you know some of the inventions of Lila's mm -hmm. dad may affect some of the work that you do. I, yeah, we use a lot of 3M products. So you, there you go. Oh, it might be. Yeah, you know, my dad used to bring products home, even ones that he wasn't developing, and say, "Hey, kids, try this out." And uh, <laughs> and he had nothing to do with this product, oh, okay. but he did. I do remember the day he came home with the Post-it. Oh, all right, yeah. And yeah. Uh, I was like. And you know that the post-it post -it was uh, created out of a mistake, like the glue didn't work. Is that right? Okay. And then they found a way to use the glue to, mm. uh, <laughs> to <laughs> raising their stocks quite a bit. Right. <laughs> um, and I said, Dad, this is the stupidest thing I've ever seen. They <laughs> should have bought stock that day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess when you think about it just in the abstract, it is kind of a silly thing. But yeah, but some of the simplest things are just are brilliant. I know. Who'd have thunk? 
but but having you know sort of that background and and uh, again being it from St. Paul, what are the kind of art and pop culture that you were exposed to as a young person that would have inspired you to pursue the career that you have? Well, um, my my parents were immigrants from Latvia, and uh, it was kind of a hard and winding road getting here. And what I noticed was that when my parents went to the theater, my mother got very happy. She just loved the theater. And as a child, you know, you're looking at your parents and you want to please them. And I think as, you know, a little girl looking up and seeing the smile on my mom or how it would change her mood made me go, oh, I want to be a part of whatever makes mom happy. Right. And it ended up, you know, kind of going into the theater. Right. Partly because of that, I think. Right. It was sort of, so what sort of theater was, it, when you talk about theater, and you well, might have seen theater. Well, there was theater, the Guthrie was, Theater, okay. the great Guthrie sure. Theater in Minneapolis, a wonderful institution. I've worked there four times. Uh, I've done a Tennessee Williams play there, Summer in Smoke. I did, and uh, my partner and I, Bob Cuccioli, we did Antony and Cleopatra. I did a, a world premiere of an Arthur Miller play called Resurrection Blues. I got to hang out with Arthur Miller, which was a lot of fun. Wow. And, uh, and uh, also, what was the fourth thing? Oh, uh, recently, not too long ago, I did uh, Lion in Winter, which was a lot of fun. I love going there. It's a beautiful theater. I, I think about them often now with uh, it being closed, you know, all the theaters being closed. Right. I think of the Guthrie often. It had so many people would go. I mean, all these farmers from the fields of Minnesota would come into the Twin Cities and see, you know, Hedda Gobbler. I mean, right. they, they just consistently came to that theater. It was beautiful. And it's a huge theater town. It has other, um, a myriad of theaters um, that are very healthy and thriving when things aren't going the way they're going right now. Right. So at what point in your career is your first appearance at the Guthrie? And is this the moment where your family says, she's made it? I mean, to see you on the stage that they would take you to see theater or? Oh, um, it's funny. My, my, my parents love the theater. So when I'd be on television, it was kind of like, yeah, I know, yeah, whatever, <laughs> you know, I mean, for them, they love the language that plays have in them and the poetry, you know, right. if it's Tennessee Williams or, so they were very impressed when I performed in our hometown stage, you yep. know, that was a big deal. And then after that, I would subsequently would like to go there because then I could spend time with them as well. Right. And in the, in the more recent years with my mom, my, my father's passed away, but my mom is 90. And uh, in the last five years, I've looked for opportunities to work there just so I could, you know, be with my mom. Right. Um, and spend some quality time with her. Now, it seems, you know, you mentioned that your, your parents drawing this distinction in your family uh, between television and theater. And I, I get what sort of how that would be. And in, in, in back in the 80s, it was a little more uh, separate, these sort of lanes, you know, it's, you know, yeah. following one path or another. And I told this to Derek Wilson a couple of weeks ago when we talked to him, working in theater a little bit myself in the 1990s, I always felt, I felt like my friends who were, you know, from New York and in a theater, they looked down on the things I liked, you know, about pop culture, you know, hey, do you guys see this TV show? We don't have televisions. You know, it was that kind of thing. It was, like, <laughs> it was so lowly. Um, yeah, you know, when I went, to, I went to the Yale Drama School to get my master's, right. and at that time, boy, you, you, we were being trained to be theater actors, and if you even consider doing television, it was considered sort of like selling out in a really <laughs> right. cheesy way. And of course, now people cross over all the time, sure. and people cross over from musicals to theater, uh, straight shows to TV to film, and that whole stigma has sort of disappeared now. But back then, we, yeah, we we never had any classes about how to 
get a TV show or make it in the business or sure. any of that. We were strictly learning the craft of being on the stage. Right. A little hoity-toity. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so was your goal then to just, uh, when, when you're in school and you're studying, is your thought you're just going to be a stage performer? Yeah. Yeah. I wanted, I really kind of, the, the Guthrie was sort of the goal. Like I wanted, mm. I want to be able to pl- play the classical plays in the regional theaters yeah. and I'd be a happy camper. And, and I really was. Uh, I never really ran after my film or television career. You know, I didn't. I didn't go to the right parties. I didn't kind of schmooze <laughs> with the right people. I. Yeah. I think I was a little maybe intimidated by the business in some ways, or didn't quite know how to navigate it, or what did it really mean, or what was you know. I was very comfortable in the theater. I knew how to go to a play mm. rehearsal and and do my work and you know sort of plotted along, and then whatever came along outside of that was just sort of the the cherry on top and found actually my TV career has really picked up a lot in the last six, seven years, you know, as I'm getting older, I'm <laughs> sure. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's interesting to think of it that way as you, you matured into television and again, it, into film. It's it. Yeah, no, it's, because it's often in TV, they want the young faces. Yeah. You know? it's, yeah. They want the young faces. So I'm kind of having a nice little, little time of it right now. Right. And I'm, in, I'm enjoying it very much. I'm learning a lot about it. And, you know, the more you do it, obviously, as with everything, the more you understand it and understand how to navigate it and how to work with that camera and that, you know, what level of energy to play and what's right. effective on film and not. So I'm, I'm enjoying having a, you know, it's, it's always a lesson. Every day is a lesson when I go to the set. It's interesting. Are there things now, you know, again, you, you know, you mentioned how your training was on stage, are, you, are there things that you're, and you've continued acting on stage even while you've appeared in television and film, are there things you've learned on screen or working, you know, before the camera that you, that are, tra- that translate or have maybe improved or help you or changed your process preparing for a play? Well, you know, what's interesting. I think it was actually working on Richard Nelson's um, play cycle, the Apple Family Plays mm-hmm. that I did at the Public Theater. We started 10 years ago and we did a play every year for four years. And it was the same, more or less the same group of people um, playing a family. And Richard Nelson, the writer and director, he really wanted our acting to be very, um, not even, he doesn't even call it naturalism. He calls it verisimilitude theater. It's like he wanted people to feel like they were flies on the walls when they Mm. came to see our plays. And in fact, the people sitting in the front row row would literally have their feet on the carpet of our set. So they were, we would do scenes and a pers- uh, an audience member would be literally a foot away from you. Right. So he wanted our acting style to be very um, natural. We, we didn't have to project our voices because he had all these microphones that were hanging mm. from the ceiling that had a very nuanced soundscape. And he insisted on us not performing, not so to speak acting. Mm. And I think he actually made me understand more of what I needed to do in front of a camera. Mm. So oddly, it was a play right. that helped me be better in front of a camera. Right. And it's interesting because most folks probably don't appreciate the technique you learn in theater, especially when you're studying it with your voice. You know, you're taught to project to the back of the theater. Then you get in front of a camera. Yeah, they'll tell you to tone it down because you don't need to do that. Yeah. Yes. In fact, in fact, the, another kind of flip story to that is when I worked at the Guthrie, the old Guthrie space was a very small thrust with, you know, 100, uh, 1,800 seats that went up in this very steep grade. And, and the actors there would say, you know, you've got to reach that last person at the top of that, that row. 
And, and I would always feel like, oh, it just feels like I have to be so big. And they said, well, to tell the truth out there, hmm. you got to lie up here a little bit. <laughs> so you're feeling like you're overdoing something on that stage, but that right. person in the back row is actually feeling the truth. Right. Yeah. Um, so it's a, it's, a, it's a tricky energy game. Yeah. And a biz- yeah, a bizarre experience. So t- taking it back to the 1980s, I note that in, again, you studied at Yale, you studied your MFA, your goal to be in the theater, and maybe even the smaller goal of making it big at the Guthrie, you know, because that's sort of how you came up. But on the way to the Guthrie, maybe, I'm not sure of the timeline here, you were cast in a play written by Tom Stoppard, directed by Mike Nichols, and if Wikipedia is to be believed, took over a role uh, originated by Glenn Close. I did. How is it that you make it? Is this your is this your first you know big break so to speak? It uh, yeah. It and it was my first play in New York. In fact, oh. I was brought to New York to do that play. I had been up at the Williamstown Theater Festival, and I had auditioned the spring I graduated from Yale for another role in the real thing on Broadway, but didn't get it. But Mike Nichols remembered me from that. Wow. And then when Glenn Close. Uh, was not coming back to it when Jeremy Irons was coming back to it. He cast me and I was up at the American Repertory Theater in Boston. I was supposed to be with them for a year. And three months into that gig, I I got a Broadway show. <laughs> so I remember I came to New York and they put me up in some hotel across from Penn Station. I don't know what the hotel is across mm. from Penn Station anymore. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I didn't even have a place to live and we were rehearsing we had two weeks to rehearse it and I had wow. to find an apartment and it was all, you know, baptism by fire. And it was very, very lucky break for me. Yeah, how long a run was the show ultimately for you? Well, I did it for, I think I did it for six months. Wow. I did it for six months. And I did it with Jeremy for probably five. And then Nicole Williamson came into it. And I had, had been offered a, uh, a movie called The Money Pit oh. with Tom Hanks. <laughs> of course. And, uh, but I tested for it and they kind of said, you know, Lila, you're funny, but you're not wacky. (laughs) And so we're going to kind of look around a little bit more. And so they kind of looked around to find somebody else. And I was happily ensconced at the real thing. Yeah. (laughs) Doing my thing, you know, the play. And they came back to me and said, oh, we want you to do it. And by then I was kind of like a little insecure about, well, I'm not (laughs) wacky enough. So I'm not sure I'm going to do this. And I, I, um, I passed on it. Mm. <laughs> I passed on working with Tom Hanks. What was I well, thinking? <laughs> you, you told them, well, I didn't get any wackier. You know, I'm still That's the same true. wackiness. I know. I thought, well, the last thing you want to be is insecure when you're trying to do a comedy. I mean, yes. you know, that's rough. You know, folks love the money pit. My wife loves the money pit. I think it's fine. I think you're fine <laughs> that you didn't do it. That's fine. <laughs> Tom Hanks, you know, that's it. And who knew at the time? Who knew? Right. <laughs> but, if, you know, so I, I guess sticking with the 80s, of course, however, as I mentioned at the very beginning of this, you're in, in, a, in the iconic, a film that is far well more regarded uh, uh, than The Money Pit. Let's face it here, right? Planes, trains, and automobiles. Again, it seems like a story of, you know, sort of what you're talking about getting on Broadway here. Um, or I guess for me, my curiosity is, is how is it that you you are suddenly cast in a film written, directed, produced by one of the hottest uh, screenwriters, certainly at the time, Mr. John Hughes, and then starring two of the hottest actors of the decade, Steve Martin and John Candy. How is it that you find your way to uh, to be in that film? Well, you know, I, got, <laughs> I don't know if I should be telling these stories. Oh. 
uh, when I was actually cast in Roxanne. Oh, really? You're taking on all my favorites. Okay. Yes. And I was at Williamstown and I got a call from who was it? Was it the producer? Yeah, I think so. And he said, you know, Steve, this is the first screenplay he's written without his writing partner. And he's the only star in the movie. And we're all starting to feel like we need another star to be in the movie. Oh, So they took it away from me and gave it to Daryl Hannah. Wow. So I think in some ways, maybe, maybe Planes, Trains was a, a gift, you know. Mm. I think that's the right sequence of events, if I'm not mistaken. You know, I've, I've forgotten which way around that was. Sure. I must have auditioned. I must have mm. read for it. Oh, I don't have a lot of memory of that. They flew me out to L.A. They'd already shot most of it. They were actually about sure. six weeks over time and uh, over budget. And actually, I got there and John Hughes, there was a house that had been, the interior of the house had been built on a set. And he said, I don't like this house. I'm going to have them redo it. So they sent me home for a week and I came back and then we shot. And then, of course, most of my performances on the cutting room floor, oh. I remember going to the premiere and going, oh, my God. But, you know, when you have a choice of John Candy and Steve Martin and sure. Lila Robbins, you're, I don't know who's on the cutting room floor. <laughs> I can tell you right now. Wait, now we need to demand the Lila Robbins cut. We need to start that hashtag on Twitter. <laughs> That's right. All the unseen scenes. Yes, we need to have Me standing it. by the phone, <laughs> waiting for it to ring, brushing my teeth. Maybe a little montage in front of a mirror, putting on different outfits. I don't know, something. <laughs> so when, you, when you're, uh, you know... When you, you said uh, originally you get offered the part for Roxanne, had you auditioned opposite Steve Martin at that time to get that role? Yes, I do remember I flew out to L.A. I remember a house with a swimming pool, but I can't tell you <laughs> whose house it was. And we did a lot of scenes and actually filmed some. It was like a bit of a screen test kind mm. of thing. Yeah. It's so weird. I don't remember, you know, it's been a long time. Yes. Yeah, and I asked I asked a question about Steve Martin because I was curious if by the time, because again, like you said, most of your footage wound up on the cutting room floor and whether or not you had already had uh, worked with him because, you know, I was curious as to what that uh, experience was, I guess, working opposite uh, Steve Martin. Well, you know, the thing is a lot of, I mean, uh, they were out, you know, doing the funny stuff and I'm sitting at home waiting for them. So the only day I shot with them, I think maybe they're one or two right. when they come home. And then sure. we're having the Thanksgiving dinner together. So my act, actual time with those two actors was very brief. Right. But they were very nice and very lovely and very sweet to me. And, you know, I was a deer in the headlights. And But uh, I get a lot of comments about that film. It's funny. A lot of people uh, love the moment when he comes home and I come down the stairs. A lot of people have talked about that moment. I just got chills you just saying that. Oh, my God. I, I, Ray and I were talking about this a couple of days ago. You know, knowing we were going to talk to you, I... I was thinking about the movie and I haven't seen the movie in its entirety in a while. So I thought, and immediately I thought about the ending. Mm. The last six minutes of the film, starting with that moment where, you know, Steve Martin's character has this revelation that uh, John Candy's character wasn't, there was something strange about his story. And then he realizes that he has nowhere to go. It's, it starts about six minutes before, I think before the ending of the film, everything, that, the whole film rides on that. If, and to add even more to that, your character in particular in the way it's shot, the way it's edited, they sort of reveal with you coming down the stairs, your character coming down the stairs. Yeah. It's, and even the moments with you on the phone throughout, it, it's, it's really, that is the heart of the story. This idea that as a, a viewer, an audience member, we understand what Steve Martin is working so hard, why he's working so hard to get home. Oh. It's not for the kids. He doesn't care about the kids that much. <laughs> you know, when the kids come in the foyer there, he's like, yeah, move aside. Where's mom? No. There she is. <laughs> and, and really, I think it's that sort of, you know, we're able to feel for him, you know, how he must feel about you and, you know, the characters, of course. 
And, but for that and that story, the film would be fine. But that elevates it to, you know, uh, again, to, you know, top oh. holiday movie. Absolutely. And Ray and I were having this conversation just a couple of days ago. Comedy, it was funny, mm-hmm. but without the heart, it would have been eh, fine. Oh, yeah. It's such a sweet story. I mean, such a, a story of humanity and, yeah. you know, caring about others and not judging people, you know, not judging a book by its cover or any of those things. I mean, it, this man, you know, they irritate, I mean, John Candy's character just irritates irritate the <laughs> heck out of yeah. <laughs> him and yet there's it's just so heartening and warm and you know i think even more nowadays it's such a wonderful tale and i'm sure people will enjoy it again this season oh my gosh yes and oh yeah i watch it every thanksgiving mm-hmm. do you really yeah oh wow yeah that's yeah, a classic it's become a classic oh yeah i remember when we were kids growing up for thanksgiving you know m- mom and whoever my dad would be working on thanksgiving dinner my sister and i would watch the parade at some point in, in late in the morning or after the parade, uh, March of the Wooden Soldiers would be on, you know, Laurel and Hardy. And then I think Wizard of Oz was on that night. But there weren't <laughs> any Thanksgiving films per se. It was Those were our Thanksgiving films. But now we have a, an actual yeah. one. Yeah. Bonafide, yeah. Um, Thanksgiving film, yeah. Yeah. Now this is me be sounding cynical. I wonder if this story, now Ray's going to give me a look, I know. If this story would fly today, right? This idea, it's unfortunate how we so divided we are that, you know, having this concept where somebody would reach out to another person who's clearly they have different, uh, you know, come from different lives and different philosophies, et cetera. Like you said, he irritates the heck out of him all movie and invite him to his home. I feel like at this point, I don't know, wouldn't fly, right? I think in this environment that we've been living in, uh, yeah, it seems unlikely, but it's interesting, you know, the church that I go to, they talk a lot about hospitality Mm. and inviting people that are different from you or um, into your home. And, you know, now we can't do that anymore, but but back when yep. none of this was happening, we were encouraged to do that sort of thing because that's it's really over breaking bread, you know, where you really can find the commonality. Uh, you know, we all want to have a good meal. We all want to yep. have our kids flourish. We all want to make a buck. I mean, there's, we're a lot alike. <laughs> yes. And, um, and maybe the relaxation of, of having a meal together sort of can make more room f- for those sorts of conversations or those exchanges of ideas. Yes. Oh, you've never been at Thanksgiving at my house. <laughs> oh, lots no. of screaming and fighting. No, yeah, no. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I, uh, no, no, actually, no. <laughs> Fights <laughs> every other day, but no, we put we keep it together for there. So again, in the 1980s, because that's what this show is about, folks. Shortly after you're in this, again, you know, legendary film, you're starring opposite another hot commodity from the 1980s, Mr. Tom Selleck in An Innocent Man. Yes. Again. Uh, so is it, um, is this off the uh, back of Planes, Trains, and Automobile that you're able to parlay a role in another film? Yes, I think that it followed pretty closely if it was not the same year. I'm not quite, I'm not quite clear on that. Yeah, release dates, it was 87 and 89. I don't know when you shot them necessarily. Yeah. Yeah, I had to go, let's see, I went to do a screen test for that. I went to L.A. Oh, I like to tell that story. <laughs> I, was, I was in the waiting room. I think it was like the callback. There was like two of us sitting in the waiting room, you know, to be sort of considered for this role. And the other woman was Julia Roberts. Is that right? And I got the role. Wow. <laughs> and the rest is history, darling. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. She's not on the boys. <laughs> That's, That's right. right. Julia, who? 
Exactly. No, no, um, that was a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Tom was very lovely and fun and lighthearted, friendly, sweet person would always take time to talk to the fans, you know, if like we were shooting outside or something, you know, they'd all be gathered there to get his autograph. And mm. he always went over and spent time with uh, his fans. That's great. It's always great to, to hear that folks we admire are as nice and warm and charming as, you know, you would hope they would be, or they see them on TV and our screen. Yeah. Oh, he's a terrific person. I haven't seen him since. I mean, I was, I did an episode on Blue Bloods, but he wasn't there. Oh. <laughs> in fact, he, I think, was not even in town or something because I said, oh, is, 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 um, is Tom around? I'd love to say hello to him, you know, and then he heard that I had been there and he sent a message through somebody there and, you know, hello, hello, but I haven't seen him since oh. the day we did that film. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it's a long time. That would have been a neat reunion if you had a scene together. That would have been that would have been even better. Cool right. Easter egg. Um, so yeah, of course, you know, as we've been sort of talking about here and there throughout this uh, interview here, you've been on a number of hit shows in the last decade. Uh, Blue Bloods, Homeland, Blacklist, The Blacklist, Handmaid's Tale, and most recently, uh, The Boys, of course. Has your evolu- the evolution of your career su- surprised you at all? That you, again, you went from somebody, you know, focused on theater to having a thriving career and on screen. Yeah, you know, it really, I mean, I'd always, I'd done a lot of TV for HBO, you know, um, in Treatment, Sopranos, Sex and the City, uh, Bored to Death. I had, I had a great, a, kind of a nice little ongoing thing with HBO, which was really wonderful. But my TV career really changed with Homeland when I got that. And once again, it was somebody remembering me, like, like the Mike Nichols story with the real thing. And I, I understand, this, the story goes that Alex Ganza remembered me from when I auditioned in the pilot to play the president's wife. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, which ultimately went to Tanya Balsam. But he remembered me from that. And then this was like, I was in season four. And so I, was, I, was, I auditioned for it. I was put on tape at my agents and I was on my way to Europe for a trip. And I was like, well, I'm put myself on tape and I'm going to Europe tomorrow. And these people are never going to call me. <laughs> and, then, and then I got the job and I was so thrilled because wow. I got to go to Cape Town, South Africa for five and a half months. Wow. And it's so funny because I hadn't really been watching the show. So I thought, oh my God, I have to catch up on my homeland. I have to catch up on my homeland. And I put in the pilot and I'm going, why is this familiar to me? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I had auditioned for it like four years ago for the pilot you know, it was all rushing back because Homelet was such a popular show oh yeah that really helped help me out mm, yes and uh and then that kind of bounced into murder in the first which then bounced into a season of deception and then uh the stuff that i've been doing lately the blacklist and the boys and and right now i'm working on a miniseries called dr death mm. for the peacock channel Okay. And it's a true story of Dr. Dunch, who was a spinal surgeon in Texas, who maimed and or paralyzed and or killed a lot of people. Gee. And it's not really clear as to whether he was basically a serial killer or he was just mentally deficient or, or what the problem was. It's based on a podcast called Dr. Death, which is Mm. fascinating. And I'm playing the CEO of uh, Baylor Plano Hospital, which is one of the first hospitals that he worked out of. Wow. Um, and so yesterday I worked with our lead guy, Joshua Jackson. Wow. He's playing the lead. Sure. And uh, 
And on Tuesday, I work with Alec Baldwin and Christian Slater. Wow, that's fantastic. Yeah, so I'm doing um, a handful of those with my big wig. (laughs) (laughs) I've got a big wig. You're stuck with a big wig. I'm stuck with a big wig, yeah. Unless she can talk them into having a, a barber shop scene in yes. like the next episode. <laughs> That's right. That's how you solve that. Right? <laughs> yeah. Can we do this in a barber chair? Uh, I just realized you're playing a big wig in a big wig. Maybe there's, <laughs> I'm not a writer. Maybe something's there. I don't know. I think this has been a lesson for, you know, aspiring uh, performers, Lila, because, you, you know, you didn't get these jobs, a couple of jobs you didn't get right away. And still, you know, someone remembered you and you were kind and gracious in addition to being talented and led to something else. You know, I have another little story about that. Um, I had, when I was really young, I think around the real thing time, I did an audition with Robert De Niro. Wow. And I I went in and I got to improvise with Mr. De Niro for an hour. Yeah, oh my goodness. And the director just let us kind of play out some stuff. And there was a piano in the room, so I started playing piano. And when I auditioned for The Good Shepherd, which Mr. De Niro directed... I uh, reminded him of that. Wow. And I, I reminded him of uh, an hour out of his life from like 25, <laughs> 30 years ago. And he, he said, oh, yeah, yeah. And in the audition for The Good Shepherd, he, I, had, I had a very small role. I, I played Bill Hurt's wife. I literally had maybe five lines, if that. I had to play the piano a little bit. So I did, I had these three scenes, you know, with one line here and one line there. I was auditioning for him. And halfway through the second one, he gets up out of the couch. And I'm thinking, oh, he wants me to leave the room. He's done. He's had it. He's, you know, I can leave now. Comes over and he shakes my hand and he says, I want you to do the role. Wow. <laughs> and it was the first time I'd gotten um, an offer in the room at, in that moment, you know. And I said, oh, my God, it should always be this fun, you know. <laughs> And I think it was partly because I had reminded him sure. of that time. And later the casting director told me that in some ways, Mr. De Niro, I don't know if this is true or not, but he had told the casting director said that, that Mr. De Niro wanted people in his film that almost like a kind of a karmic thing. Like he wanted to bring people into it that he owed something to or felt something about, or, you know, another friend of mine, Amy Wright was in it and she had been in uh, the deer hunter with him just kind of wanted to be surrounded by kind of a karmic energy of friends and family and people that maybe, as you said, that, you know, we were ships in the night or something. And suddenly this magnetic thing brings us together on his film. Yeah. And it was just a really special moment. Yeah, and exactly. Like you said, if you hadn't told him that, he wouldn't have realized that karmic connection that you had. Yeah, yeah. That's very sweet. So, you know, you plot, you plot along and, and sometimes uh, things come around, you know. So you know, every now and then, I, I don't regret how I got to my place in life, but there's some things that I come across, like the technology today for creating music. Had I had that when I was a youth, I would have composed, I would have written a lot more songs and music and you know, I just, I'm envious of, you know, sort of youth that way. But do you think it's easier or thinking about your own journey, um, do you think it would have been more or less difficult to accomplish what you did in the 80s now? I guess, how does the 80s compare as far as someone starting a career the way that you did? I guess when I was younger, I wish I had been a little more savvy about the business or been mm. a, little, a little more aware that that was kind of part of what I needed to do. You know, I literally thought I could walk into an audition in a gunny sack with no makeup and, you know, (laughs) I'm a real actress and you should hire me, you know, instead of realizing you got to do the thing, you know, you got to 
the zhuzh. <laughs> and, and I think a lot of the young people, you know, know how to zhuzh mm. and, uh, and look fantastic and have all this, you know, um, social media stuff. But in mm. some ways, my fear for them is that there's so much focus on that, yeah. that if you don't have the goods to back it up or the craft, yeah. you know, all, my, all through my early 20s, it was just pounded into me by wonderful older actresses that you needed to know what you were doing. You needed to have a, a craft. You, you, you don't expect to be a, a pianist without practicing. Mm. You have to, you know, some people think that you can be an actor because you have a resume photo and, right. <laughs> you know, your uncle knows somebody. Yeah. I don't know. And I suppose you, it could work out for some people. Yep. But I, I, when, I, when I teach uh, my student, I mean, I, I teach on and off here and there. I always try to emphasize that, like you really have to love the thing itself. I mean, all mm. this other stuff, if you're doing it to become famous, if you're doing it to become rich, if you're doing it to, you know, stroke your ego, none of these things are going to really be fulfilling. I mean, you have to love the thing itself. Mm. That's why I've always been happy uh, doing my work, whether I'm doing it, uh, you know, in Timbuktu or doing it here or there. It was the doing itself that was important to me and was satisfying and and fed me and all the other things were really great i mean i remember like going i don't know getting a paycheck for the first time at, you know in a plane oh my god they pay you too I mean, this is great you know <laughs> because I, I would do <laughs> and i think just, there's just a lot of pressure on young people to have that facade really polished mm. and those connections really hooked up but you show up you got to know what you're doing and I'm not sure the focus is always there. Yeah. So what we're hearing is it's be- it was better in the '80s, and that's what we're going <laughs> to. That, that's what I heard. Yeah, that, 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 that's the short answer. Yeah, it was better. Always better in the '80s. <laughs> Lila, we thank you. We're so grateful for talking to us today. Thank you so very much, and we want you to have a happy Thanksgiving because we will. Because we're going to check in on planes, trains, and automobiles, right? Right. Oh, yep. yeah. Maybe I'll pop it in too. We'll see. <laughs> She's just delightful. I really. She, been a fan of her work for for many many years. She's and again she's, she's so in so many things in in the end in the in the very recent last few years. Like we said, so many hit shows, but she got her start, of course, in that iconic movie that you know epitomizes in much the same way those TV shows we were talking about earlier do a sense of family and coming together of different people and hospitality and gratitude, all these things. Yeah, yeah, that's all good stuff, man. I, I don't know that we've actually proven anything though about the 1980s. Though, <laughs> are you sure about that? I. I I'd have to think about it. I'm not as quick. We have proven oh. beyond a shadow of a doubt. Okay, sure. That planes, trains, and automobiles and right. everything connected to it yes. makes the 80s and Thanksgiving better than any other decade. Very good. And the audience agrees. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. And we will talk to you next time on The 80s. See ya. See ya.